bless your word, apply it to each of our hearts as you see fit. We pray that through radio and Facebook and other ways this church is getting the message out, that it would reach everyone that you want to hear. Lord, thank you for Jesus, the living word of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. War is such an ugly word. It's the theme of today's text. If you brought your Bible, we're in Romans chapter 7. Dictionaries define war as open and declared armed hostile conflict between states or nations. War is a contest carried on by a force of arms and a series of battles or campaigns. It's the art of paralyzing the forces of an enemy, either public or private. Here's the top 10 wars that is lowest uh, to the highest death, death rates. Number 10, the American Civil War. 1861 to 1865, 800,000 lives were lost. Number nine, Soviet war in Afghanistan, there was over one million dead. The Vietnam War lasted 20 years and there were over a million lives lost. Number seven, a 30-year war where over five million died. Number six, the Napoleonic Wars that cost six and a half million lives. Number five, the Russian Civil War, seven million died. Number four, conquest by the Empire of Japan, over 20 million dead. Number three, World War I, 1914 to 1918, 50 million dead. Number two, the Mongol conquests, where 60 million died. And number one, World War II, 1939 to 1945, over 70 million lost their lives. Albert Einstein was asked by a reporter at the end of World War II, sir, what type of weapons do you think will be used in World War III? Einstein answered, I don't know about World War III, but if there's World War IV, it'll surely be fought with sticks and stones. Paul discusses war in our text today in Romans 7. And you've heard people say, we are in a battle for the soul of our nation. That we are also involved in an eternal battle for our souls. We have been or are now POWs, prisoners of spiritual war. And the battle continues to wage uh, uh, as we progress towards Judgment Day. Paul gives his personal testimony in, in Romans chapter 7. He's a, a soldier in a spiritual war. In Romans 7, 14, Paul speaks in the first person, present tense. There's a personal, shameful battle raging inside of Paul that no one knows about except for himself and God and now us. It's personal. And you'd expect Paul to have all the answers by now, to have conquered every sin within, but that wasn't the case. In fact, he admits he's engaged in an internal war. Some think that Paul was talking about how he was uh, before he accepted Christ. In fact, that's what the early church thought and taught. See, they didn't want to believe that he was still wrestling with sin as an apostle. 
But before he knew Jesus, Paul was proud of himself. You remember in Philippians 3, he said, I could, have, I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. See, before becoming a Christian, he was very confident. He said he obeyed God perfectly. He was right with God, and he was faultless in his own humble opinion of himself. It was after he became a Christian that he began, he began honestly facing and admitting his inner personal struggles. In Romans 7, he spoke of himself in first-person present tense 33 times in Romans 7. And in these last few verses, he mentions sin in his life 17 times. And he's speaking about the current inner struggle that he's facing. You know, the more we study the Bible, the more aware we become of sin in our lives. The Bible is what reveals sin within. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is active and alive, sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts all the way through to where soul and spirit meet, where joints and marrow come together. It judges the desires and thoughts of the heart. There's nothing that can be hid from God. Everything in all creation is exposed and lies open before his eyes. It's to him that we must all give an account of ourselves. You probably heard a quote from Mark Twain, who says, It ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. We are all present tense sinners. See, there are thought crimes, motive crimes, many crimes that we have left undone. And Jesus gave just a couple when he says, uh, have you fed the hungry, clothed the needy, visited the sick, visited those in prison? That's not a complete list. And we all fall short of what God defines as perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we continue to struggle even after we've accepted Christ. In fact, the closer we get to God, the more we become aware of our sins. That's why we don't trust in our own goodness and achievements. Bible, Bible tells us in Proverbs 28, 25, those who trust in the Lord will prosper. Those who trust in themselves are fools. And it reminded me of a cartoon, the final caption says, we have met the enemy and he is us. Paul's at the height of his career as a Christian and as an apostle. He's a church planter, he's a master Bible teacher. He's spiritually mature. And he knows, even as he writes these words, that he's going to be standing before God soon. But he still struggles and wrestles with sin in his life. Standing before God will bring the enormity of our sin to light. It was Isaiah that said in Isaiah 6.1, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on his throne high and exalted. His robe filled the whole temple. I said, there's no hope for me. I'm doomed Every word that passes my lips is sinful. I live among people whose every word is sinful. And yet, with my own eyes, I've seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You remember Simon Peter falling on his knees before Jesus. 
And he said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Paul was making an honest assessment of his life, and he concluded, even as an apostle, he needs a Savior, and that's Jesus. Alcoholics Anonymous lists their fourth step of their 12-step program as the need to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. It's the first action step of the 12 steps, and it requires a person to take assessment of their character defects. It reveals the fact that we need God's grace and forgiveness, and we don't need some random higher power. We need Jesus. And in this war, we surrender all too easily. Paul says in Romans 7, verse 14, the law is good. The trouble is not that there, but with me, because I'm sold into slavery with sin as my owner. God's law appeals to all that's best in a person. It asks great things of us because we're capable of doing great things in God's estimation. And you've heard the saying, don't sell yourself short. Well, that saying is actually the, the, the Greek word that Paul uses here, prepomenos, meaning to be sold as a slave. It means to sell something for less than it's worth. And that could be the, the person who moves in with another person, who gives themselves completely but doesn't hold out for marriage first. They're selling themselves short. We sell ourselves short when we think only of immediate gratification rather than long-term cost. And you think of Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of bean soup. We sell ourselves for so much less than we're worth. We can get impatient with God, meeting our needs so we help God out, but we do so by selling ourselves to sin. John Maxwell says the two most most important days in a person's life are the day they were born and the day they find out why they were born. We were born, we were created by God to live in fellowship with Him. We should not trade for anything less. We can sell ourselves into slavery and sin becomes our owner or we can submit ourselves to God. There's not, we can't do both. Sin's always looking for a way for gaining ground in our life. And this is what Paul is admitting right here in this text. You remember Jesus said, watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? It's weak. And what is this internal war? We're in the middle of a battle between two forces, Paul says. Verse 15, I don't really understand myself. I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows I agree the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong, it's sin living in me that does it. He says we have two natures at war within us. He says in the next chapter, chapter eight, verse 13, if you live by your corrupt nature, you're gonna die. If you use your spiritual nature to put to death the evil activities of the body, you'll live. But even after we're given a new nature, the old nature's still there. The best intentions aren't good enough. You know, rationalizing is where we tell rational lies to ourselves. 
and the inward war doesn't end until this earthly life is over. Paul says, let me explain further. He says in, a, in Galatians 5.16, live your life as your spiritual nature directs you. Then you'll never follow through on what your corrupt nature wants. What your corrupt nature wants is contrary to what your spiritual nature wants. What your spiritual nature wants is contrary to what your corrupt nature wants. They're opposed to each other. As a result, you don't always do what you intend to do. We always want what's good for us. God wants what's best for us. God's word is good for us, but we're not good by nature. God gives us vegetables with some desserts. We want desserts with no vegetables. And sin is like an exiled king who will do anything to get back his throne and get back in power. When Jesus saved us, he kicked out sin and the house was swept clean, but our bodies aren't redeemed. Until we die, our bodies wants what the corrupt nature wants. And sin looks for every opportunity to get back in. Jesus said it this way in Luke eleven twenty four: When an evil spirit goes out of a person, it travels over dry country looking for a place to rest. If it can't find one, it says to itself, I'll go back to my house. So it goes back and finds the house clean and all fixed up. Then it goes out and brings seven other spirits even worse than itself, and they come and live there. So when it's all over, that person is in worse shape than at the beginning. Peter said it a little different. He said it in 2 Peter 2.20, when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they're worse off than before. We know what good things we should do. And some people take the victim role saying, I can't help myself. We can. We just choose not to. There's a, a constant conflict within us between what we know we should do and what we actually do do. Peter, uh, uh, Paul says, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And in Ephesians 3.16, he says, that's why... I, I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he'll empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Paul says, sin dwells in me, lives in me. And he uses the per first person pronoun, in me. And he says it inhabits, it indwells, it occupies my house. Sin is still in one of the rooms of my house. We know what to do because God's law tells us what to do. But there's another power at work within us, which is called sin. And there's a conflict of practice, what we're going to actually do. Verse 18, he says, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, nothing good lives in my corrupt nature. Although I have the desire to do what's right, I don't do it. I don't do the good I want to do. Instead, I do the evil that I don't want to do. Now, when I do what I don't want to do, I'm no longer the one who's doing it. Sin that lives in me is doing it. That's a tongue twister. And it's perfectly crafted. You know, when a child does something they know is wrong and they're going to get punished for it, 
Many times the parent will ask them, why? Why did you do that? And the child will honestly answer, I don't know. Paul's a child of God. He knows the rules. And when he breaks those rules, he laments, I don't know why I did that. There's this conflict in me. And me and I go back and forth. And you hear it in his words, nothing good lives in me and my corrupt nature. I have the desire to do what's right, but sin lives in me. He refers to the flesh that I'm stuck with until we get a new body that doesn't have the carnal appetites that we are fighting with now. And we see this conflict explained in verse 5 back earlier in chapter 7. He says, when your old nature was still active, sinful desires were at work within you, making you do whatever God says not to. Our soul is saved, our flesh is weak and sinful. And that's why when we're tired or hungry or sick, we're often more receptive to sin. And even though Paul was fighting a battle within himself, he never gave up. His mind never wavered from God, but his body often let him down. He knew he was near the end of his life, but he was still imperfect. Philippians 3.12, he says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to, pos to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. The goal is perfection, and he hadn't reached it yet. But he didn't let his failures paralyze and immobilize him into giving up. And guilt sometimes opens a doorway for more sin to enter and more distance to come between us and God. But he pressed on to finish the race. You know, sometimes I watch a TV show. It's a series called My 600-Pound Life. Have you ever seen that one before? It's aired since 2012. It's in season eight with 110 episodes. Each episode of My 600-Pound Life follows a year in the life of an individual that's at least 600 pounds. Their flesh is killing them. They know what's causing their death but they eat more. Now these patients place themselves under the care of Dr. Now, that's an expert in helping them say no to what's killing them, excessive bad food. But it has to be a lifestyle choice to change. The patients will struggle with this for the rest of their lives. In January 2015, there was a spin-off series. My 600-pound life, where are they now? It's aired to update viewers on people f featured in previous episodes. And some of those people's, people have reverted to old habits, and many have died of heart failure. Some commit suicide. But others who are battling the same temptations as the others followed the doctor's orders. They turn their lives around and live happy lives. Your particular sin may not be food, 
but it is something. And God will lead us to life and transform us according to how well we follow his instructions. Paul struggled with sin until the day he died, but he never gave up. When he fell, he got up, he fixed his eyes on the goal, and he pressed on. But it never became easy. It's a constant battle within. And Paul wrote these very candid words and gave a personal confession about himself so that, he, so that we wouldn't feel alone. And we continue to do what we don't want to do. Paul wanted to do all that was good and right, but he didn't always do that. It's an internal war. He fought this war between two principles, he says. In verse 21, I've discovered this principle of life. When I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what's wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death. He says there's two laws at work within us, the law of God and the law of sin. The law of God is a perfect map to heaven, and he acknowledges that God's law is, is good and it's holy. Christians always agree when they read the Bible for themselves, they say, yes, that's right. But the law of sin is at work in us too. It desires to have our own way. It sometimes says that under the right circumstances, it's okay to do wrong. The forbidden fruit of the Garden of Eden looked good, and the motive was knowledge, but it was forbidden and it caused spiritual death. And it all boils down to that personal war between us and God. Verse 25, I thank God our Lord Jesus Christ rescues me, so I'm obedient to God's standards with my mind, but I'm obedient to sin standards with my corrupt nature. In his mind, he agreed with God. And many of God's people say amen to the truths that are taught to them, and then they struggle to live according to those truths. I thought it was interesting. He said his mind is in a battle with other parts of his body. Verse 23, I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. And the Greek word literally means bodily organs, limbs, hands, feet, mouth, and other parts. My mouth gossips, my hand touches things they shouldn't touch, my eyes look at forbidden things, and all of these things of my body leads to death. And his conclusion is, what a miserable person I am. And that misery, that unhappiness, the wretchedness will drive a person to God or to substitutes that lead to death. I'm gonna close with something that Paul knew that probably we don't. He says, who will rescue me? Who will rescue us from this body that's taking me to death? Saul was born in the city of Tarsus and in that region, for especially heinous crimes, the Romans would execute some criminals in a particular way. 
If a person committed murder, he was bound hand to hand, face to face, and leg to leg with the corpse of his victim. He was thrown into the heat of the sun, and as the corpse decayed, it ate death into the murderer. The guilty person couldn't escape. He was tied to that body of death, insanity, the realization of no hope, the scorching sun would kill the offender, and truly this is a picture of hell, not being able to get away from our guilt. Paul might have remembered that horrific punishment when he asked that final question in Romans chapter 7, who will rescue me from this dying body? Thank God, our Lord Jesus Christ rescues me. And who still is the only person who can rescue us? Jesus is the one who rescues us, the Bible says. Our time is short, people are dying, and like it was said today, people looking at us may be seeing the only Jesus in and through us that they'll ever see. If we don't speak out, they may have no hope. We need to do our jobs. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, thank you that though there is a pandemic that is killing people, there's a great God in heaven on his throne and a Savior that can save people. Forgive us of our sins. Thank you for Jesus. Use us. Use our mouths and everything you've equipped us with to bring somebody to Jesus. Forgive us, Lord. Use Sun City West Christian Church to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. As we prepare for our time of communion, it is again a, a part of our worship that brought face to face to the fact, the very fact of what we've been talking about, that we are weak, that not without the power of Jesus Christ can we overcome. But he has overcome death and sin. And so as we partake of the emblems in just a few moments, it is a time to remember Thank you, Lord, for your victory that you give to us in Jesus Christ. So shall we stand to sing our communion hymn as we prepare for our communion time. Shall we stand? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Isn't that great? Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He, 
full atonement can it be hallelujah what a savior lifted up was he to die it is finished was his cry now in heaven exalted i hallelujah what a savior when he comes our glorious king all his ransom home to bring then anew this song will sing hallelujah what a savior in today's communion you probably already know the routine but i'll say it again the communion will be served in two cups. The lower one has the bread and the upper has the juice. And after we uh, have our prayer for communion, then we'll all take it together. Well, today I'm going to talk about a little bit of something that's called a model. I'm not talking about a male model or a 